Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible of your very own, we will have the screen. Uh, the screen's behind me in just a little bit. We'll have the text on them. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but the top shelf reason of all the good reasons He gives us His Word is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, that, that's the most valuable thing that you can know, right? It's to know God. And so uh, to, to know Him better, you chase after knowing Him where He's made Himself known. And so if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call yours, take that one, take ours. Uh, it'll be a pretty good thing to do. All right, so we're kicking off a new effort this week, uh, a new sermon series that we're going to be in for the next five weeks, or Lord willing, at least that's the plan. Uh, and we're calling this series Distinct Church, right? Distinct Church, as in the church is distinct from the world around it. Uh, and so we're going to spend the next five weeks uh, kind of identifying five specific ways that we see uh, that the church is, in fact, distinct, right? Brilliant. Just absolutely brilliant. Never doubt that your elder team is the, not the most brilliant and creative uh, elder team in the land. All right, so if you haven't been here for very long, uh, maybe you're not aware, uh, if you haven't been here for very long, we try to bounce kind of back and forth a little bit uh, when it comes to uh, the just kind of the style of our sermon series um, when it comes to our posture and approach on sermon series. Uh, we're always preaching straight through kind of longer texts of the Bible. That's kind of how we've been rolling for a long, long time now. Uh, not only do we think that's a healthier and more productive way of doing things, but it's also the only kind of preaching I'm smart enough to know how to do, and so that's just what we go with. Um, but that's on an individual weekly basis. When it comes to the trajectory of a series specifically, we typically try to spend a series or two preaching through a book of the Bible Bible, or maybe a major section of a book of the Bible, uh, and that was the case of our last two series. Uh, our last two efforts were um, the seven letters, the letters to the seven churches out of Revelation 1 through 3, and then before that was our kind of semi-annual attempt to, to take a chunk out of the Psalms, right? So that's kind of the way we roll. Um, and so as a regular habit, we'll spend a, a couple of series in a row preaching through a book of the Bible or a part of the book of the Bible, and then after that, we'll do what's often called, or at least called by a lot of people, as a topical series. A topical series. And so we take a topic that we want to know more about, and we go to the Bible to try to understand that topic better. We'll still preach through longer texts, because again, not smart enough to do anything else. But that's the case of our effort, new effort beginning this week. We've got five ways that we see that the local church stands as a distinction, as a contrast from the rest of the world. So we're going to go to several places in the Bible over the next several weeks to try to prove out exactly how we get to those conclusions. Um, and so now that we got that down, what's the overall premise of what we're doing here? Well, I want to try and convince you, really want to try, uh, I want to try to convince you that the local church is filled with people and with pictures and with purpose that intentionally flow against the stream of the prevailing systems and worldviews that we find ourselves surrounded by. Sound like a, like a big task? Sounds like a big task to me. <laughs> Listen, though, rather than merely being kind of awkwardly different, which we can sometimes be, and rather than uh, being distinct to some kind of, you know, like uh, tight-fisted rebellion against things we don't like, which, let's be honest, the, the church has a broader sense, has got some of those stories in their history. I'm convinced that when properly understood and when properly clung to, the distinction ends up being beautiful. Like, otherworldly beautiful. Beautiful now and beautiful in an eternity to, to come. And I'll admit, that's a tall order. It really is. 
wading into an intentional distinction of systems and worldviews never fails to be anything less than prickly. All right? And so I can promise you, just look you in the eye and tell you, that there will be some, there will be some moments over the next five weeks um, that strike a nerve. And I think it has to. I think it needs to. But our God is good. And I think he's faithful to get us exactly where we need to be. And so that brings us to our text for the day, Ephesians chapter 2. For those of you who are new to the Bible, what's the quick explanation of what the book of Ephesians is? Well, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church that he helped to start. All right? He was around in Ephesus when the church got off the ground. Uh, it's been several years since then. He's moved off to other places to start other churches in those other places. And he's, been write- and he's writing back to them this letter uh, to address some problems that he's been hearing about. All right? he's, still got, he's still got people that are feeding him information, now, even, though he's, even though he's been gone for a few years. And so he's been hearing about some problems. And he's going to write a letter to address those problems. And kind of the main push that he's aiming for in this letter is to help help this church in Ephesus understand who they are as a church, especially who they are as a, as a body of believers in light of what God has already done for them in the gospel. Right? Because God has done this and this and this, you ought to live like this. That's the message of Ephesians. And all throughout chapter 1, there is a steady drumbeat of the Apostle Paul arguing that the true God is completely, and I mean completely, unlike the false gods that the Ephesian church was surrounded by. If you remember back a couple of months ago, uh, Jeff got the privilege of preaching on on Jesus' letter to Ephesus in Revelation 2. And one of the things they were most famous for, probably the thing they were most famous for, was having the temple of Artemis, right? This, This wonder of the ancient world. But the false god Artemis needed you to serve her. All right? uh, meat and other offerings needed to be laid at the foot of her statue in order her, for her to eat. Her temple priests needed to bathe her and pamper her and make sure that everything was being doted on. And, and it was all done in the hopes that a capricious deity that was represented by that statue would look kindly upon you and choose to bless whatever it was you were hoping that they, were, they would bless. The pagan worship that surrounded the church in Ephesus, both in Paul's day and then later on in John's, it was chiefly characterized by you doing something to this a supposed god or goddess to take notice of you and to delight in your gift so that you could then get something that you wanted from them. That was the game. It was a perpetual game of always trying to get out in front of the fates, always trying to get out in front of the winds, always trying to get out in front of your supposed enemy and what they were aiming for. If you had a God in your corner to fight on your behalf, you could get way out ahead. That's how it rolled. And sometimes those gods or goddesses had some demands upon your life and actions, but usually not. could mostly even be ignored. It was really about whether or not you interested them in some form or fashion to make it worth their divine attention. So go and make your offering down at their temple, and if it was pleasing to them, you could lock your patron deity into being on your team instead of the other guy's team. And that was the system. That was the game. And while some of those actions and presumptions are given different names in different cultures, I don't know, maybe you can think of some, some examples where they play out slightly different ways. That posture... Is, is the prevailing posture of pretty much every major and minor religion that the world has ever seen. It really is. Pay your sacrifice, 
toe whatever the moral line is, continue to chip away at the, at the distance between you and the supposed God by emptying yourself of all the stuff that stands in the way and posturing yourself in a manner that's finally pleasing to them. It's religion 101. And now that you've got your leverage to make this external God or this internal God do whatever it is you're wanting them to do. It's not simply a first century Greco-Roman reality. It's all religions everywhere. That's how the system works. Well, except for one glaring example. <laughs> and that's what I want to get into today. An incredibly noble outlier to that system. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children, excuse me, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right? So, there are a number of distinctions between uh, biblical Christianity and other religions. Right? And even, uh, even up to including uh, several things that call themselves Christianity that very much clearly are not Christianity. Right? Uh, and, and the first distinction is on that list is our default position before God. Our default position before God. It's, it's a glaring distinction, actually. Uh, the position can be subdivided into a couple of teachable uh, realities. Who God is and who we are. And, and both of those have clear, clear teaching in the Bible. Both of them have really clear teaching in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Um, when spelling out the baseline spiritual situation that people find themselves in, the Apostle Paul does not go on to describe some kind of morally neutral person, you know, trying to get ahead of some, some good things that are all kind of universally understood to be true, understood to be good, no, he says that those who are making up the church in Ephesus, they were once dead men. Dead men. That, that following what was universally thought to be good, they loved their sin and they embraced their sin and they loved their trespass and they embraced their trespass against God, against the true God, which, who instead deserved their obedience and deserved their adoration. He says that they, were, they had been deceived by a wicked, glory-thieving, self-professed king of this world. But because of the wickedness of their own hearts, they had willingly clung to and gladly bought into that lie so that they could chase after their own self-filled, self, sin-filled self-sovereignty. They weren't morally neutral at all, not even close. He says that they were by their very nature children of wrath, inheritors of wrath, precisely because they were driven by their own passions and desires. I don't know about you. I've spent 40 some odd years in this world now. But I can't think of another sentence in the English language that will elicit as much gnashing of teeth as that sentence will. You know a better one? That, that they are by nature children of wrath, inheritors of wrath. It, it pricks at the very core of who we are, doesn't it? And I think Paul meant it to. But, but is it true? 
Like, is that, is that actually the state of things? Or is Paul just some kind of unhelpful firebrand who needs to be silenced because he's stirring something that doesn't need to be stirred? And I would argue that the visceral reaction that wells up inside of us when we read things like that is actually proof that Paul struck exactly the right note. I don't, I don't know if you've learned this about the world we live in, but I think I've learned this about the world we live in. Every worshiper gets really, really nasty when you reveal how hollow their idol is. And there's no bigger idol in each and every one of our hearts than ourselves. Period. See, according to the Bible, the common notion that we might approach God as some kind of level-footed negotiator with terms that he ought to take seriously is about as far from the truth as anyone could possibly ever get. The more accurate picture would be to say that we are all wannabe usurpers to his throne. That we celebrate our rebellion and would willingly continue to chase after our rebellion if left undisturbed. We're an awful long way from, hey God, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine for a second. So how should the true king deal with those who revel in their rebellion? What is actually deserved for those who continue to blindly rage against the only one who deserves the throne? And how does that equation shift when the true king is not some bumbling caricature that we often imagine kings to be? Let's be honest, that's the American way. But rather, this king is the perfect and eternal king who is infinitely holy and infinitely righteous and infinitely wise and infinitely lovely and infinitely good. This isn't some revolutionary story where you know, we're attempting to throw off the shackles of oppression and, and tyranny. No, the Bible, the Bible seems to paint this story as us being the bad guys and God's happily forever after. And he needs to do something about it to right the wrong. Church, this is why Paul uses the word wrath. Now, I know this is going to shock you, but wrath has never been a popular word in our culture. <laughs> but it would be intellectually dishonest to pretend that it's ever been beloved, right? That there was some moment in history past that people loved the idea of God's wrath. It flows directly against the stream of what we desire. We don't like that God is right and justified to punish sinners, but it's not, hear me, it's not because that punishment is unfair, that punishment is unjust. Everyone loves justice in our culture. We can't get enough of it in our culture. We adore the idea of the good guy winning and the bad guy getting what he deserves. We bake those themes into all of the world's best stories. We hate it when injustice continues on unresolved. And we at times rightly hold governments and even leaders of those governments accountable who, when they don't step in and do the right thing. We love justice in our culture. We adore justice in our culture. It's woven deeply into the desire of every human heart. The problem, though, the problem is that we desperately long for justice when offenses are committed against us. And we desperately long for justice when we witness offenses being carried out against others, especially those we love. But we gnash our teeth at the idea that we could ever be deserving of justice ourselves. Oh, but you don't understand. My, my circumstances are different. Oh, but you don't understand. That's, that's, that's unloving. Give me time. I'll figure it out. Oh, but, 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 but. So let me say out loud what some people wrongly assume is the quiet part of Christianity. It's not. The Bible teaches that all people 
by default, not, not some accident outside of you, not some series of unfortunate circumstances that we didn't see coming. No, the Bible teaches that by default, all people are separated relationally from God because of their sin. And that because of our sin-soaked separation, we are owed, deserve is the word, the just and right punishment for that sin. In Ephesians 2, Paul calls that punishment God's wrath. It's not unfair, it's not unjust. According to Paul, it's actually the promised perfect fulfillment of fairness and justice as God rightly upholds all that is owed to him. And you may continue to gnash your teeth at that news. You may revile and usurp harder than ever before because you want to lean in further and further to your passions of your flesh and the desires of the body and the mind. But let us not lie to ourselves and continue trying to paint the true God in any other picture than the way that the Bible actually portrays him. Unapologetically portrays him. But listen, maybe you're not so gnashy these days. Maybe you used to be gnashy, but now you're not so gnashy against that. Maybe you're beginning to see the depth of your sin and the rightness of God's judgment, and you're starting to wonder what can be done to assuage this rightly wrath-filled God. And the answer is, you can't do anything. How's that for good news? You can't do anything. And that's why Paul said that the Christians in Ephesus used to be dead. They used to be dead. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but dead folks, probably the least productive members of society. <laughs> well, teenagers come in a close second. <laughs> dead people rank just below that. Just barely beat them out. Dead men can't fix their problem. They're powerless to do anything about the issue. They can't bring themselves back to life. Dead men need to be acted upon, right? And that's precisely what Paul says happened to the Christians in Ephesus. You were dead. Past tense. You were dead. But look at verse 4. But God. So I'm of the opinion, it's just me, I'm of the opinion that those two words are the best two words in the Bible. Despite the spiritual hole that we're in, despite what we actually deserve from this holy and perfect God, but God. But God what? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So Paul tells us that not only is, uh, that God is not only just, but that he is also rich in mercy. He gets to be both at the same time. Is he, how does that work out that he's both at the same time? I don't know. He's bigger than you and me. And because he is rich in mercy, he loves with an incredibly great love. And because of his great love, he takes some of those unlovely glory thieves who are spiritually dead and deserve to stay spiritually dead, and he instead makes them alive, we're told. Why? Is it because we suddenly changed our posture and now God is happy with us? We now love him where we used to love rebelling against him? No. Is it because we finally figured out something that God lacked or couldn't obtain on his own and so now we've got some ringer in our corner and we've managed to get him backed up into a wall and we can now uh, come to some kind of agreed upon terms or he needs something from us just like we need something from him? Not even close. Now at the end of verse 5, Paul calls it an act of charity. 
By grace you have been saved. That's what the word grace means. It's the Greek word charis. An undeserved gift. As an act of cosmic charity, God takes spiritually dead people and he makes them spiritually alive. He saves those who are not capable of saving themselves. In fact, Paul says here that God redeems and he reconciles even as we continue on in our deadness. Okay, but how does he redeem and reconcile? I mean, that sounds like a really nice thing. Tell me, tell me how we get there. Tell me more about it. Well, the answer is that God comes and does what we cannot do. It's the shortest answer I've got. The Father sends the Son in spite of our continued rebellion against him. The Son puts on flesh and dwells among us. He enters into the brokenness of what we have broken. Jesus lived sinlessly so that he might be the spotless sacrifice, the kind of sacrifice that you and I have no means of ever bringing to him. Not with our lives, not with anything we can gather together uh, individually or collectively. We don't have that in the bank. He died on the cross as a substitute in your place to make payment for your sin that you owe. But you, you can't chip away at the distance between God and man, but Jesus washed every ounce of it away. The Father pours out the full weight of his fair and righteous wrath upon the Son instead of upon you and I. So for those who are united to Jesus in his death, there is now no more condemnation, we're told in another Bible passage, let alone a debt of sin left to be paid. But after dying, Jesus was then raised again from the dead as a vindication of his Righteousness as a down payment for our own future resurrection. Christians are not merely united to Jesus in his death. We are also united with him in his resurrection life. That's precisely what Paul points to next for these formerly dead Christians in Ephesus. Look at verse 6. What else has he done? He's also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If, if the first distinction between biblical Christianity and other religions is our default position before God, then these two verses described a second, and I would think possibly far larger, distinction between Christianity, biblical Christianity, and every other religion. See, despite her impressive temple... And despite the continuous streams of offerings with strings attached, there was not a single person, not a one, running around the city of Ephesus longing for the day when they would finally get to spend eternity sitting at the feet of Artemis. Not a one. Nobody's going, I really, I can't, can't wait for that day. Oh, Artemis, bring me home. Delighting as she unfolds with deeper and deeper detail the story of her grace and kindness towards them. That idea would have sounded insane to an Ephesian pagan. Probably sounds insane to a lot of false religions today, even some who call themselves Christian. But that's exactly the future reality that Paul spells out for those who belong to Jesus. That doesn't mean that's all we're going to do in this future heaven and earth to come. Not even close. We're told about a lot of other really cool stuff too. But this seems to be a massive part of that. Incredibly massive part of that. Gather around, everyone. Let me tell you again the story of how I saved you. And this time I'll add another layer that you don't know about yet. 
What a day. Can we, can we lay all the cards on the table and be really, really honest? That day sounds either sounds like something you can't wait to experience or it doesn't. Am I right about that? There's not really an in-between on that one. You either, you either long for that day to get here as fast as it possibly can or that, that doesn't appeal to you at all. And if it doesn't appeal to you at all, your understanding of Christianity might look a whole lot more pagan than Christian. Those who belong to Jesus are not those who have leveraged their way into some kind of symbiotic relationship with a God that they hope to get a few things from. No, they were once usurpers. They were once rebels of the kingdom with a capital K who have now been rescued in an incredibly radical way out of their rebellion by the very king they sought to depose. Jesus has reconciled himself to his enemies, we're told, not by any means or merit of their own, but by extending his own mercy and grace towards them. And so maybe you're here this morning and you know and understand the story of the gospel, but you've never responded to that gospel. You want that story to be your story. Okay, so what's the next step? Well, in verse 8, Paul actually tells the once dead Ephesian Christians how they were brought to life. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through what? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right, so there, there are different types of nerds in the world. I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, like you, I probably, like you probably do, I dabble in various levels and categories of nerddom. Um, I can speak intelligently and at length uh, about pretty much every sport on the planet. I, own, I can like, own a conversation about barbecue and about Mario Kart and about 90s country music. Like, don't touch me, man. Woo! I geek out thinking about the chaotic intersection of politics and faith. I know that scares most of y'all. But one of my favorite categories of nerddom is theology and theological history. You don't end up chasing the career I've chased without being kind of nerdy in that stuff. If you happen to be a theologically nerdy person, you're probably already aware of this, but for those of you who aren't, this weekend is an incredibly important weekend in theological history. 505 years ago, on October 31st, an Augustinian monk and seminary professor named Martin Luther, he's hanging out in Wittenberg, Germany. He nails up a challenge to a public debate to discuss some inconsistencies he's seeing between the Bible and the accepted belief and practice of the Catholic Church. That challenge comes to be known as the 95 Theses, the 95 Claims of Disagreement. But all he was doing was posting it on the big poster board that says, hey, let's talk about this stuff. Some of his students see that challenge and they do what college students all across history have often done. Uh, they spend their time and energy amplifying that message. And so they send that post of the 95 Theses off to the latest technology of the day, the printing press, and it goes viral. Right? Everybody gets a copy of Martin Luther's Theses. And thousands of people end up reading Luther's incredibly public challenges to accepted practice and belief of the Catholic Church. It sparks what we now call the Protestant Reformation, Right? Luther is promptly excommunicated, he's defrocked and anathematized, and Protestantism becomes a thing. So why would any of that be relevant for us today other than the fact that it's the same weekend on the calendar? I mean, history is cool, but like, maybe even massively important for understanding things, but why, why tell that story in the middle of a sermon about the gospel? That seems awkward. 
but because there was something very, very important that lit a fire in Luther that caused him to post the thing on the door. Luther was getting ready to teach a class on the book of Romans. So he figures that he ought, to, he ought to read Romans before he's required to teach it. The Bible wasn't exactly an important voice in the Catholic Church in those days. And upon reading Romans for himself, Luther comes to a couple of texts just like what Paul just wrote here in Ephesians, and it blows him away. He realized that the difference between what the Bible teaches and what the Catholic Church was teaching could not be reconciled. They were, they were vastly different. It wasn't a matter of nuance. It wasn't a, a collegial disagreement over some secondary doctrines. No, they were pointing in entirely different directions and articulating entirely different understandings of the, what the gospel was. And the difference boils down to a single word that Paul uses in, here in verse 8. Faith. By grace through faith. What Luther saw when reading the New Testament for himself is precisely what Paul intends for his audience to understand about the work of Jesus in their own life. That salvation, that reconciliation with God, it cannot, be, it cannot come by any level of effort on your part. You don't have the ability to achieve that. It cannot come by you paying your sacrifice and it cannot come by you towing whatever moral line happens to be and it cannot come by you chipping away at the distance between God and yourself by you know, getting rid of all the bad stuff and leaning into all the good stuff. You don't have that in you. No church, it doesn't matter what group uh, uh, is teaching it. It doesn't matter if they call themselves Christians or not. That, that's Ephesian paganism. Hey, God, I'll scratch your back for a moment if you'll promise to scratch mine later. Dress it up in whatever you think looks nice. It'll never be anything other than an attempt to corner God into doing what you want him to do. And that's not going to work for you. And Paul here, he says that those who were once dead but are now alive, they got there by a singular pathway, through grace, through faith, by trusting God. That Jesus and his finished work on their behalf was enough. What they truly needed by abandoning all of their efforts to try and manipulate the plan or fix the problem themselves. They instead simply turned from their sin and back towards the God they were rebelling against. And in his grace and in his great love, mercy is given Reconciliation is accomplished. Relationship is restored. And they are saved. Church, as we walk throughout this series over the next several weeks, we're going to be seeing several ways that the church stands in stark contrast to the world around it. Distinction in every level. But before those other distinctions make any sense at all, we need to understand the very first distinction. And here it is. The church is made up of people who are brought by God's grace and by God's grace alone to a distinct position before him. This is, this is not something we figured out. It's, it's not, certainly not something that we've managed to accomplish through discipline or, or through a, a steady work ethic or through trying for so long. There's no spiritual pathway to walk. There's, there's no correct list of spiritual actions to endear yourself to this God. No, it is the overwhelming goodness of this God and the grace of this king who lovingly pursues the rebel and carries him back home. And if you get that part of the gospel wrong, you get the gospel wrong. 
The position is purchased for us by the work of Jesus on the cross, period. And it's clung to by faith. Paul says that that faith is given to us by a God who not only sees fit to provide everything we need, but also to guard us from boasting. Oh, he's good like that. I've got to be honest, I'd be the kind of guy that would find a way to boast. You better than me? <laughs> and so maybe you're here this morning, and that's, that's where you're at, right? You know the gospel, you understand the gospel, but now it's time to cling to Jesus. Instead of your attempt to cover that distance yourself. How do you do that? Well, the answer is simple. You, you ask God to save you. You don't need some priest. You don't need some mediator between God and man. God wants to give you himself. So you repent of your sin and you turn to him as Savior and Lord. I'm going to pray in a second. We're going to sing another song. That's a time that we set aside to give people space to respond, to, to translate action out of whatever's going on in their head and their heart. I'll be down front if you want to talk. Let's talk. What about those of us who are already followers of Jesus, right? How do we respond this week? I think there's an ever-present danger. This, at least it's what I see. I think there's an ever-present danger of making the gospel more complicated than it actually is. You ever guilty of that? I'm sometimes guilty of that. I also think there's an ever-present danger to think that the gospel is nothing more than some kind of introductory door that we walk through and then we move on to other things. Rest in this for a moment. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. You once followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You gleefully lived in the passions of your flesh and were by nature, by inheritance, a child of wrath. But God, oh Christian, never forget where you would be if not for those two words. But God, one of the spiritually healthiest things you could ever do in your life would be to make a frequent habit of reminding yourself of that reality. We'll give you some space to do that this morning. But God, listen, maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, maybe that's by formally joining our church family. You've been here for a while. God's convinced you it's, it's time to plant yourself here. There's a process for that. Let's talk about that process. Let's get to it. Maybe you, you think it's finally time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. For whatever reason, you've been following Jesus, but you've never done like the first thing he said to do. So let's get on that. We can talk about that. We actually have a baptism coming up here in a few weeks. I'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. We can schedule it for that same day. Maybe, maybe God's been calling you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. and Maybe that's by being an actual missionary. Maybe it's by working in some foreign place that desperately needs good, healthy church members. I don't know, but I know that I would adore getting to help you work towards figuring out what those next steps are. I would consider that to be the best part of my week. And, and listen, that's on the same week where my Texas Rangers are still playing baseball, and I'm going to steal about half of my kids' Reese's, all right? That would still be the best part of my week. It's a high bar. But whoever you are, and however God's Word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the Scriptures. Thank you for clarity of the gospel. I don't, I don't know everybody's background here. But I've been hanging out in churches long enough that 
to know and deeply fear that there are a lot of people playing pagan games. Would you call us to yourself? Would you wreck all of our attempts to try to manage and to try to appease and to try to close the gap on our own? Would you wake us up, bring us to spiritual life? Whether they've been hanging around for a while or not. God, for those of us in here who already know you, would you remind us over and over and over again of what it is that you have accomplished on our behalf? I'm, I'm tempted to believe I've got things figured out, but it's by your goodness alone that I endure. It's by your grace and sufficiency alone that I have any hope of making it to the end. We love you. Thank you for loving us as dead men and bringing us to life again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.